name is Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, speech-language pathologist and co-owner of Milestones and Miracles. Today, I'm really excited to have on the podcast Laura Smith, speech-language pathologist and the face of SLP Mommy of Apraxia. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. I want to go ahead and read your bio just to familiarize our audience with you and your accomplishments. Laura is a 2014 graduate of Apraxia Kids Boot Camp and has completed the Prompt Level 1 training as well as the Kaufman Speech to Language Protocol. She's lectured throughout the United States on childhood apraxia of speech and related issues. Laura is committed to raising and spreading childhood apraxia of speech awareness following her own daughter's diagnosis of CAS and dyspraxia. She was the apraxia walk coordinator for Denver from 2015 to 2019 and writes for various publications, including the Asha Wire blog, The Mighty, and on a website she manages, slpmommyofapraxia.com. In 2016, Laura was awarded Asha's Media Award for garnering national media attention around apraxia, detailing her meeting with UFC fighter Ronda Rousey, and also received Asha's ACE Award for her continuing education, specifically in the area of child motor speech disorders. Currently, Laura is a practicing SLP specialing in apraxia at her clinic, a mile high speech therapy in Aurora, Colorado. So I discovered you, Laura, through social media, which I know is <laughs> easy to believe these days. And I just really appreciated your, appreciated your perspective as both an SLP and a mommy who has a child with a diagnosed speech and language disorder. I believe that you just really have a unique perspective that all pediatric SLPs can learn from to improve both our practice um, and our relationships with the families that we serve. But then again, you also have a unique perspective as a parent on the other side of that table. And I just really, again, I really appreciate learning from you and hearing your opinions about being a parent of a child with a speech and language disorder, but then also being a therapist um, and how to, again, improve my knowledge and implementation of helping children with childhood apraxia of speech. You know, thank you. Sure. As as an SLP um, who's now been practicing since 2001, 2002, something I can't even remember, (laughs) I I can look back on my career and, and in my personal life also. And, you know, there's moments challenging moments, maybe at the time, but certainly moments that have been pivotal in changing the way I practice, you know, hopefully improving the way I interact with families and, and increasing my knowledge in a certain, you know, area. And I imagine for you, Laura, having a child who was diagnosed, who is diagnosed with childhood apraxia of speech, that was a pivotal moment for you in your career. So I just, absolutely. Would would you please share with us kind of what led up to your daughter's diagnosis and then how that affected you both as a mom and an SLP? Yeah, sure. So, um, Ashlyn, you know, I was an SLP before my kids were born. And um, I, I think I've been, I was an SLPA first. I was practicing since 2004. Um, and she was born in 2009. So uh, I had some experience there, but I do feel just in general, just even becoming a mom kind of gave me a better and different perspective on, you know, just that's your heart walking outside your body. (laughs) And um, yeah, I feel like in that sense too, it made me a better therapist, but certainly kind of leading up to what was going on with her is I think uh, I like to tell people that, you know, I was doing speech therapy when I was pregnant with her. And so I um, like to say, you know, I, I, you know, felt like she was going to come out and be this most precocious talker um, because she'd been, you know, getting speech therapy and hearing it in the womb, you know, (laughs) you were reading to her, I'm sure when she was in the womb. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, anyways, I, 
I started noticing just in general developmental delays with her kind of overall when I went to like the well checks, for example, and they have you fill out the um, surveys that says, you know, what is your child doing and what are they not doing? And um, the more that we advanced through the months, the not doing got pretty, you know, glaring. So mm -hmm. um, there were some things that were odd to me, like she had what I would call ballerina toes. And um, I just really, I worked in severe needs classrooms before um, and worked with a lot of children with cerebral palsy. And to me, her her feet just seemed so tight and it seemed more like some sort of cerebral palsy to me, but I took her into like PTs that I knew and things like that. And they all were like, no, I mean, every child develops, you know, on their own little timeline, she seems fine. Um, and so, you know, there were things like that. And then obviously the speech. So she was very quiet, very quiet. She was very happy. She giggled all the time, laughed all the time. She's still like that at 11. Um, yeah. But just not a lot of babbling. Um, I like to tell a story at like nine months, um, my friend's mother had died, unfortunately, and I was attending the funeral and had my nine month old Ashlyn with me and she was perfect through the whole thing, like didn't make a peep, like well behaved, didn't cry. And in fact, now I know that, you know, when parents report that they had a child or a quiet baby or a good baby that you know, that's kind of um, a red flag for potentially having CAS. So at the time I didn't know. And then um, obviously when, around the 18 month mark, we expect to hear a language explosion. And this, it just was not happening, you know, and I was doing language stimulation with her pretty much every day at this point. Yes. <laughs> and to nothing. It just, it was crazy that it, we weren't really getting anywhere. And I mean, there were some things that she was acquiring, of course, but just not at the rate that I would expect given the amount of therapy she was receiving from me. <laughs> the amount of free therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like all day long, right. Cause you can't yeah. really turn off your job. No. And especially when it's your own child. Then sure. it was very motivated. And so, um, yeah, basically, you know, I don't know why I didn't call an early intervention person to get a different set of eyes. I think that I had this mindset that for one, what would they do that I wasn't doing? Um, and for two, she was, I don't know. I think it was that, you know, it's just like, what would they do? But I wish in hindsight that I would have, um, you know, called. But anyways, we went through this through um, almost to three when I knew that if I took her to child find, she was definitely going to qualify for an IEP. Like I knew this because of how far behind she was. So I went into child find and, um, yeah, I mean, sure enough, they identified delays, not only in speech, but in gross motor, fine motor. And I'm very thankful for that evaluator SLP who just was straight with me and said, Laura, this is apraxia. <laughs> And yeah. I was, again, looking at it from a cerebral palsy perspective, which she does um, have as well. But that came way later. I think I got the diagnosis when she was eight. Wow. So, I mean, the CAS diagnosis really kind of smacked me in the face. I wasn't looking at that at all. I was looking at like low tone, maybe delayed speech due to, you know, potentially CP that no one seemed to see but me. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what led up to the diagnosis. Yeah. And you talk, I, I failed to mention yet that you also wrote a book and it's entitled Overcoming Apraxia. And I purchased it recently and read it and it's wonderful. So I would recommend it to our audience that's listening. Um, but you said in the book, in the chapter where you talk about what led up to your daughter's diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech, you talked about um, feeling guilt yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm yeah. And just explain to us, why did you feel guilt? Yeah, this is a great question. I think that I even had a conversation with my sister the other day who was like, you felt guilty? Like, and I'm pretty close to her. So it was, it was interesting. She didn't know that, but I will tell you that I think mothers in general, universally, if something happens to your child or they get hurt or, um, you know, really anything like that, you automatically for some reason, or we, I'm not trying to speak for all mothers, but definitely me and uh, many yes. that I've spoken with, you feel guilty, like, you know, you didn't protect them or you failed to help them or um, you did something wrong. And so 
uh, a lot of parents report guilt just in them getting a diagnosis of some sort. Like, you know, I, I've had parents that express guilt over perhaps that was in their genes that they passed it on to the child, which I mean, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I guess you could say, sure, you know, it, it, it was, you know, you did pass your genes on to them, but it's not your fault that you have this particular diagnosis or that they have this diagnosis, you know, but right. parents do really go through that. And then in Ashlyn's case, it really was like, you know, we don't, we know that there are three main causes of CAS. Um, you know, one is some sort of, you know, intra, like some sort of brain insult that could be, you know, due to an intrauterine stroke or something like that. Um, other things can be, um, you know, like genetic mutations, like she has, there's some sort of genetic disorders. And then we have idiopathic, which is the most common of no known origin. And so at that time, I didn't know what her cause was. And so it would have been labeled idiopathic at that time. And you just kind of go through everything in your pregnancy, you know, and other parents report this too. Like, was it, I painted the room and I wasn't wearing a strong enough mask or uh, did I eat lunch meat with the you know, whatever bacteria can be on it that they advise you not to eat when you're pregnant. Like you literally just go through all of these crazy scenarios and it's nonstop and it's very, um, it fills you with a lot of anxiety. And so not only did I have that, um, I also had the added guilt of being an SLP, feeling like I couldn't help my own child and feeling like I thought I was a good speech language pathologist, but maybe I have no idea what I'm doing because I can't even help the most important person in the world to me. So it was very, oh. very, very hard. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and a struggle, I'm sure. And I just want to mention in your book, I want to read an excerpt from your book where you, again, we're talking about leading up to the diagnosis and then how you felt after her diagnosis. In your book, um, you say, as much as I prided myself on keeping up on the current research, at the time, I was not an expert on apraxia. The scope of practice for speech-language pathology is extremely vast and it grows every day. An SLP is responsible for articulation and phonology disorders, receptive and or expressive language disorder, stuttering, cluttering, speech-language delay, hearing loss and disability, auditory processing disorder, autism, voice disorders, and pathology, traumatic brain injury, aphasia, dysphagia, dysarthria, apraxia, and cleft lip and palate. In addition, SLPs are technically certified to work with both adult and child populations and have knowledge of various syndromes, disorders, and diseases and their effect on speech, language, and communication. And I will say just as an (laughs) SLP, like reading that, like, allowed me to exhale a little bit. And you know, yes, I've worked for several years and I've had my ups and downs where I felt like you said, like I was a, like, I'm a pretty good SLP. And then I have moments where I feel like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. I'm not good at this. What am I doing? But when we stop, you know, whether it's just in our everyday, you know, working as an SLP or in a situation like yours, when you have a child who's diagnosed with a speech and language disorder, I think it's important that we stop and remember that, you know, I almost want to put that on my bathroom mirror to read every morning before work. Like when I probably missed something, to be honest, I'm sure there's something in there I missed too. I mean, it's so vast. Yes, it really is. And, and two, you know, just that we can treat patients through their entire life too, you know, so we've got all these specific diagnoses, but then we can treat them as children and, you know, as teenagers, as adults, as older adults, you know, so I just, again, appreciated reading that. And, and I hope, you know, that anyone out there, you know, as a, a practicing SLP or any type of therapist who has a child who, you know, has received a diagnosis or, or something's not going quite the way that they hoped it would go with their child's development remembers that, you know, we're not expected to be experts in all of those areas. And, um, I, I, my son is, has a diagnosis of dyslexia and ADHD. And when he was diagnosed early on, my mom had to kind of give me a, a reality check because I, you know, got Orton-Gillingham trained, which is, a, you know, the treatment, one of the treatment methods for dyslexia. And I was going to tutor him at home. So we didn't have to pay out of pocket for tutoring. 
And she stopped me in my tracks, my mom. And she was like, Lacey, just be his mom. You don't Mm -hmm. need to be his tutor. You don't need to be anything else. You need to step out of your, take off your professional Mm -hmm. hat and just be his mom. You know, so I think that's important to remember too. If you're able to reach out and get help from other people, let them fill those roles to help your child so that you can just be that safe place for them to land and that warm hug and that those encouraging words that they need. Um, it's so true. And I, I feel like the hardest um, pot, the hardest time during my entire journey with her was really between 18 months and three years when I was working with her every day, full of anxiety, um, researching constantly, and just trying to get her to like trying to be her mom and her speech pathologist and feeling like I was failing at both. And then my son, you know, I just had had my son and he was real little and feeling like I was neglecting him. Like it really is, you know, every SLP I've met now with a child who has a speech disorder has, you know, um, gotten their own private speech therapist as well, because you just, it is so important. The role is as a mom should not be understated because it's huge. And Uh, It is a big role and and it is nice to just exhale and say, I'm just going to be their mom because that's enough pressure as it is. And no one can fill that role, but someone else can fill the role of their SLP. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So moving on in 2019, so relatively recently, there was some new research that came out that now helps us as speech language pathologists identify indicators, signs, and symptoms of childhood apraxia of speech before even the age of two. So up until this time in our field, we knew how to diagnose. We knew what to look for in older children um, to diagnose childhood apraxia of speech. But in this younger population, the early intervention population, we weren't sure. We we maybe could suspect it and see some of those um, indicators or symptoms, but we weren't as sure there wasn't the research to back it up for us to give a definitive diagnosis. So can you speak to what there's, I believe there's seven signs. Can you speak to what those signs and symptoms are? Um, sure. sure. And I just want to tell people too, you know, where I'm, um, I'm, I've been doing these uh, Facebook lives with Carrie Ebert, who is an early intervention birth to three um, expert, but also specializing in CAS. And uh, we, she created this infographic based on the research. And so, yeah, we have seven that was really identified in this research article. And uh, so the first one is in the first two years, you have limited vocalizations with little babbling history. So that we've kind of always known that that's definitely something I've always asked on my case history, but it was nice to see it confirmed in this retrospective study. They looked at children who were babies and there was very limited babbling. Mm-hmm. By age 12 months, there was a lack of a consonant sound by um, the child's first birthday. So I, it, that's so fascinating to me because a lot of these kids can speak in vowels with glottal stops, you know, yeah. with the glottal stop marking like what would be a consonant but essentially they're only speaking in vowels. So I definitely see this. And with Ashlyn, she actually did have a consonant. So again, these aren't like hard and fast, um, but it is nice to have some guidance here that shows definitive markers. But Ashlyn did have high, which I'm, you know, technically is H a consonant. I don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that Um, speaks to her sweet personality that you mentioned in the book and you've mentioned today how she laughs a lot and just is a a happy little soul. So that has a good social word that she had. Oh, Oh, yeah. I mean, and and it was so powerful. And and I just remember, too, she could change her intonation, which was also, you know, why I wasn't looking at CAS either, because, I mean, she'd mastered this high. I mean, she could do like, hi, like in the grocery (laughs) store to get someone's attention. Um, after she was diagnosed, I don't know if I put that in the book. I think I did, but I was, I was in a fog and I was buckling her into her car seat. And I remember her looking up at me and it was hi. Oh yeah. Like recognizing something was wrong with me and she had mastered it with intonations, with meaning. Um, so anyway, just a side note on her, yeah, <laughs> but we'll go back. Like you were huh? saying, we don't always, when we suspect childhood apraxia of speech or diagnose it, we We don't always, the children aren't always able to vary their intonation like that. So that was a strength she had. And like you said, another reason you weren't thinking about apraxia with her because she could do that. Absolutely. So, and all that my SLP friends too were like, oh, she has her first word at one. You're good. Stop stressing. Like that's a good power word, you know? Yeah. 
still inside my gut, I'm just like, she's so quiet though. It doesn't make sense based on, you know, all the work I'm doing with her, but right. Right. Anyways. And then by 16 months though, we have these kids show that they used fewer than three consonants. So, uh, that's, you know, another uh, thing to, to look at when you're in birth to three. So again, there's a lack of a consonant sound by 12 months uses fewer than three consonants by 16 months. Then by age two uses fewer than five consonants. So these kids really do have a limited sound repertoire and they might be very chatty. I mean, Ashlyn had her go-to sound was a da. And yes. she could do it for everything. But if you think about it, it was very limited in terms of her consonant repertoire. So we still were only really dealing with like mom, maybe this D and she used D for everything like baby. Cause I was pregnant at the time, you know, it was day, um, daddy, there were vowel errors, depending on what she was talking about, doggy, baby, and daddy all sounded the same on any given day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so she, yeah. And so it was really just this overuse to of D or um, I, 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 she would have whole conversations with me. Like she'd be like, a da, a da, 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 a da, a da, a da. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other thing, this is interesting too, by age two was the limited use of the K and G sounds. So I thought that was very fascinating. Again, I have seen kids, Carrie and I talked about this on our live last week. I have seen kids who have apraxia who only have K and G or only have a G as their go-to sound. Yeah. Um, in fact, I just evaluated one the other day and his go-to word was Inga. And so where Ashton's was a da, it was reported that this kid just said Inga all the time as a go-to. So this ga being like, and this ng being very prevalent. So very unusual. Um, but according to this research article, if you're seeing limited use of the K and G, that's kind of suspicious. Um, and then, then favoriting the stops. So P, B, T, D, and nasals, M and N. So, and missing other classes of sounds, of consonant sounds. Mm -hmm. We went through this last week and I, rem I, I, I tell the story too. Ashlyn actually got SH very early because mm -hmm. she loved shoes. <laughs> Oh, and so she legit before she could even say mommy consistently could go shoe, shoe, way a shoe, <laughs> like to find her other shoe. Oh, um, so yeah. lots of vowels, with some random SH. Um, so again, these aren't, you know, hard and fast, but these are sure. some guidelines for early interventionists. Um, and then between the ages of 13 to 18 months, productions are largely vowels. So I've kind of talked about that. Um, even in her phrase, where's the other shoe? I mean, it's very vowel-y based, right? Where are shoe, right? Yes, yes, right. Missing a lot of those important consonants for that intelligibility of speech. And then yeah, so a marker for, for the CAS diagnosis early on. Okay, good. So yes, that's awesome that we now have this list to kind of, like you said, use as a guideline. It's not, they're not all hard and fast. You still see some variation with kiddos that end up with the CAS diagnosis based upon these seven signs. But in our field, it's wonderful that we now have, have this guideline to go by. Um, yes when we're working in early intervention, you know, to, to raise awareness and to these families, to let them know, this is what we're thinking. You know, this is probably safe to diagnose since we're seeing, you know, most of these signs on this list so that then they can at, start advocating for their child and seeking out appropriate therapy for apraxia of speech. And um, I'm going to skip ahead a couple questions here, but you mentioned in your book, and um, I want to share with our audience in case they're not aware, apraxia does require a specific type of treatment and therapy. Um, can you share with us what type of therapy helps children with um, childhood apraxia of speech? Yes. Yeah, so the research is um, really clear now. I mean, we've got some good research that shows uh, therapy based in the principles of motor learning. And really, I feel like this should probably be taught in grad school at this point, because principles of motor learning in general, understanding therapy um, based in these principles uh, makes you a better therapist across the board for all articulation and phonological disorders, in my opinion. I mean, uh, so, I mean, if you want to read about principles of motor learning, um, Edwin Moss is a researcher that you can research and he has like a tutorial on it and you can kind of get an understanding of what they are. And then there's other research articles that really uh, Moss included that talk about how you can um, incorporate that into your therapy approach. But essentially what we're doing is 
we know that CAS is a movement disorder. So even though it might look like an execution problem or a lack of sounds, really the problem is in planning and programming the movement for the sounds. Yes. So uh, you might even see kids in your practice or in your caseload who have reported that they can say various sounds in isolation, but are still relying heavily on a go-to sound, for example, or, um, you know, relying heavily on vowels and glottal stops and things like that. So that's where it really comes in that um, there's so much to work with in early intervention or in the early stages of CAS with just what the child can say. So I feel like a lot of times you might pick up one of these children and you're like, okay, you know, we've only, we've got, you know, five consonants, let's try and get them, you know, to 10 or to 15 or something like that. But if you're focusing on an approach for apraxia, you want to narrow in on what the child is already demonstrating and try and get them to do it on demand. So the problem a lot of times we see with apraxia is children might be able to say, you know, let's say daddy, for example, dada. But then when you tell them, say dada, or like kind of hold them to it, they can't do it. And that's because this idea of volitional speech is easier than on-demand speech is a hallmark of apraxia. So it's because they don't know how to, they don't know how they said it. And if they don't know how they said dada, that's why we can't bridge the gap then to say other words like do or day or other things, you know, parents will say, gee, these can say dada just great. But when he goes to say day, it's a, you know, and right. uh, that really is telling. So what we have to do is help them know how they're saying the sounds and the words that they can say. And we do this using uh, some sort of cueing and cueing can be visual, verbal, tactile. There's so many different ways to cue, but essentially you're going to need a cue for every con at least consonant sound. Um, if the child has a limited vowel repertoire is having even a hard time, you know, moving from a consonant to a vowel, then you're going to need a separate cue for each vowel. So uh, why that helps is because then when you go to say daddy and they recognize, oh yeah, like that's when I do this with my tongue, duh. When you go to say another word, you cue them and say, okay, like I want you to do that drumming sound, for example, or use some sort of visual cue on your face or a visual picture cue to show them. Um, and that's kind of how you build the motor plans. Right. Speech is a really complicated, complex process that so many of us take for granted, right? Absolutely. And it's yeah. so, so obvious when you deal with someone or you're working with a child who really struggles with it. Yeah. And you have to kind of back up and break everything down into these small movements and you know and i talk to parents about it's a movement between a consonant sound and a vowel and then a consonant and a vowel and another consonant and then two syllables consonant vowel consonant vowel so and and when we don't have difficulty with that motor planning or the movements required for speech we just don't realize what all goes into speech production um mm -hmm. Of course, it's something that gets me very excited because I obviously love speech and language, but not everyone has the same appreciation as us, Laura, but um, it's really fascinating. And, and then to see the progress that these kids make with this structured approach, you know, based in the principles of motor learning, it's, it's fascinating and exciting and really awesome to be able to appreciate that as a therapist and I'm sure as a parent too. Um, something really to celebrate. So wonderful. I think the most satisfying part in this whole therapy process in treating a child with or a young child or even a pre-verbal child, regardless of the age um, with CAS is being able to be the person who takes them from that pre-verbal stage to verbal. And it's so powerful. It's so incredible. And in fact, I had actually treated two, boy, two boys in two separate years that were on my caseload before Ashlyn, before I even knew she had CAS. And uh -huh. um, I had treated both of them. They came in to, I had some, I had some training under my belt as an SLPA during my time as an SLPA um, because a lot of times I was assigned to children who needed more than two days a week that the SLP was at the school. And so then I would have to follow the treatment plan and give the, give the child the, you know, extra day for more frequency. And so I did have some experience with it and some training. And I just remember these two, two boys, um, you know, were kindergarten age, they come on my caseload and they have phono goals written, but they can't even speak. And it really was like changing my approach to having a small target word list of like 10 words, giving them those cues, giving them that feedback. 
and then making progress. And I think the most powerful moment for me, I think I do talk about it in my book too. Like I just will never forget it was uh, we've been working all semester, basically all tri-semester on this set of 10 words. And they included, you know, mama, dada. And these are parents that had never heard this, or it was papa actually, mama, papa. Um, and he, these parents had never heard the child say their name. And he was five in kindergarten. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, like waiting three years for Ashlyn to say it was excruciating, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> three to four years. Like they were, he was five well on his way to six and they come in for the progress report time and I, I prepped him and I'm like, you can do this. I'm going to be right here to help you. And we're going to be able to say these. And he nailed it. And his dad started bawling. He just oh. burst into tears, picked this little boy up and hugged him and was kissing him all over his face. And Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It almost makes me tear up now. Like the most powerful moment. Um, one of the moments in my life, it's just so incredible. Yeah. And to witness that moment and, and to have been part of helping that child get to that moment, how rewarding. Yes. You yes. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I really, that, that moment for me, when I, when that happens to a child and now in my practice, I see that quite frequently. Um, it's such an incredible moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in, in your book, again, you talk about the, the specific type of, of therapy and treatment that, you know, parents want to seek out for their child, should their child receive a diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech. But something that I want to share with our audience that you write about in the book is you really encourage parents and families to advocate for their child and question any SLP that their child goes to. And I just want to read this one, these couple sentences right here. You say, I always encourage parents to ask questions and not be afraid to question an SLP's methods. If the clinician is skilled and confident in what they are doing, no question will be offensive and they will be happy to explain the reasoning. And I just want to touch on that for a second because again, I went through grad school 20 years ago now. So we didn't really learn anything much about apraxia. No. And um, I'm not sure. I hope that graduate programs, like you said, I hope, you know, um, principles of motor learning is something they are teaching in graduate school programs. Yes. Now. But you know, all of us as SLPs are at different points in our career. All of us have worked in possibly just one setting or multiple settings. But again, going back to that, there's so many things that are under the umbrella of speech and language pathology. You know, I just talk some more about what you recommend parents ask therapists and why they should ask those types of questions. Yeah. So I think, you know, I tell, I, I liken it to if someone came to me and I said, sure, I treat autism. And I, I have obviously a lot of familiarity with autism because it is a more prevalent disorder, but I am far from saying I am an expert in it. And I am far from being able to answer very specific questions um, related to a potential treatment approach and why that I'm going to use with that particular child in terms of AAC, for example, or something like that. So, and if you start asking me questions, it's going to become obvious really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas conversely, if you start asking me questions on apraxia, I am going to be able to be confident and answer all of your questions um, in a very competent way. And I feel like if parents ask questions and that their inner gut will tell them like, yeah, this, this person knows what they're talking about with this, or mm, it doesn't seem this person is quite as strong in this. So, so and, and again, I just wish that, and I hope that we're getting the message out there via social media and things like that. SOPs shouldn't feel like they have to be an expert in everything. We should not have to feel this way. <laughs> yes. And I will tell you the SLP who just admits they aren't, but they're willing to learn and take additional trainings and work with the family gets, goes a long way and gains more respect from the family in the end than fronting and pretending that you absolutely are a complete expert in this very rare disorder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, it goes both ways, but, you know, unfortunately, and I feel like I had this mindset too early on, you come out of grad school, you have your C's, you have your master's degree, and you are the expert in the room on speech and language disorders. You are, if you're working in a school, it's you that they turn to, you know, so, right. um, 
and and so you do feel this pressure to be like, well, yes, I am the expert. I'm the one with the master's degree, you know, in speech language pathology. But just recognizing, like I like you read earlier in the podcast, that our field is so vast and it encompasses birth to geriatrics. I mean, how could we possibly? We just cannot. Yes. And so SLPs have to drop that persona of we are the experts on speech and language, but similar to your pediatrician who is, you know, kind of a generalized um, practitioner, right? So like we are the general practitioner expert and we might have gone and gained some additional expertise like I did in CAS. So now I'm a CAS expert, but I'm by no means expected to be the voice expert for the Parkinson's patient who's 60 because I haven't gotten those, you know, I haven't received those additional trainings on it. Right. Anyway, so questions that I actually have a blog post. I have a um, website called slpmommyofapraxia.com. And um, I did write a blog post and I frequently send this out when people message me on Instagram and things to them. And it is like top 10 questions to ask SLPs treating CAS. And then I include links to what you would expect um, the SLP would be, how the SLP would be answering them. So, I mean, just kind of some questions I have would be, how comfortable do you feel treating CAS? What treatment approach do you use? How is treatment for CAS different than other speech sound disorders? Because this is another thing parents will ask too. They'll say, well, do you think this is CAS? And parents will report to me that the SLP will be like, yeah, you know, I think it might be, and I'm suspecting it. And they're like, well, what do we do different? And then their SLP tells them nothing. It doesn't matter because nothing changes. It absolutely changes. (laughs) Unless, unless, the only caveat being, unless you are an early intervention SLP who just automatically uses principles of motor learning with every little baby on your caseload, which is very (laughs) unlikely. Yes. Uh, and not needed in those cases. Yes. Unless yes. you are doing that, your treatment approach needs to change. You, and, and that is evidenced by, and that's why I wrote the book. I did, you know, more than a year's worth every day, every day of language stimulation. And yeah. it didn't work. You know, like, and the minute she gets into an approach using principles of motor learning, I started seeing progress immediately. Like, that is powerful. So yes. uh, it does change. So, and then, you know, you can ask SLPs. I encourage parents, ask them what additional trainings or certifications they have. Um, and then just some groundwork. Don't be afraid to ask them, you know, what causes apraxia? What are the red flags? Like we discussed here. Um, how do you diagnose it? What are the principles of motor learning? How many children have you treated? Like parents are afraid to ask these questions because it sounds offensive and some SLPs do get offended. But, you know, it's your child and you need to advocate at the end of the day. And you need to know this for your child. You need to know that this person has this background. So those are just, uh, and then what resources would you recommend? So, um, yeah, those are some questions that I encourage parents to ask. Good. I I love that you have the blog about that. So I'll look that up and share that in the um, description of the podcast so that our audience has quick access to that because that is a great guideline. And um, now that I know it's there, I'm going to share it with families too. So thank you for writing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I can encourage SLPs like really to go there and challenge themselves and say, absolutely. how would you answer these questions? Uh, Because here's the other thing I have to tell you, this is the most concerning thing about apraxia to me is that SLPs think they know. And mm-hmm. so they think they're doing the best thing for the child. They think they know what the best treatment approach is. They, and, and that's the biggest worry for me because they don't know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so if you, you can't change what you don't know, if you believe in your heart of hearts that you're doing the best you can for the child and that yes, the treatment approach wouldn't change, you're gonna still sit and do Hannon or language stimulation and it's going to work and you truly believe that, it is so problematic because it's not true. And so, you know, that's another, another goal of my book. And I'm so happy that it's, it's being realized, even if it's just in a small, small way to some students is that, you know, I feel like we need to get these students before they graduate and just, you know, put the bug in their ear that, you know, Hey, you might not know enough about this and it's okay. And that's normal. And, you know, if you do come across a child like this, you probably are going to need additional training in it, you know? So, yeah. And it's okay. Like you said, it's, it's okay. okay. Yes. <laughs> Just seek out the additional training. Let the families know you don't know everything yet, but you're pursuing it and you're trying Absolutely. to learn more. You know, yes. like you said, just being upfront is always and honest is the best policy because you don't ever want to mislead a family and their child. And, you know, they look back and feel like that time was precious time that's now gone that their child doesn't get back 
you know, that could have been a time of improvement had the therapist directed them in the right direction or, you know, used a, a better approach to therapy. So I've written about that too. Time is so crucial because, you know, as many of the listeners know, the brain plasticity and the growth between birth to three is huge. Yes. And if you can capitalize on that area, on that time frame of growth, using the right approach, it really does. And I believe, you know, will create better outcomes for that child in the future. Because here's the other thing about CAS that I never thought about until I was a mom to a child with it. Even when I treated those two boys, even when I saw the dad cry, I didn't think about this, is that parents are always looking long-term. They are looking into adulthood. They are looking, how is this going to affect my child in the long-term? And I will tell you, if you go to Google or to YouTube and you, you, you know, you do a search for mm -hmm. CAS with adults, um, there are some pretty grim things that you can watch and some very sad, heartbreaking videos from individuals who still struggle, you know, significantly with it. And, and, you know, you realize that, you know, CAS is a lifelong neurological disorder. I mean, lifelong neurological disorder to a parent is devastating. Sure. It just is. Yes. And, you know, so if we can capitalize on that brain plasticity from birth to three and give them the right approach that they need, I believe though the prognosis later as an adult is going to be much, much, much better instead of people, my whole practice, I could probably just pick a name, you know, from like, if we were looking at my caseload, I could just pick a name and I would likely be able to tell you a story that this parent was burned by an SLP that didn't do the right approach for the child. That's uh, what my whole practice is built on because yeah. people wouldn't need me if they were getting the right approach from all the other places that they'd been encountering when you first go right. on this journey. So, right. Right. So it's so important. Like you said, that we get this message out there and EI SLP start recognizing these signs and symptoms earlier and getting these kids the appropriate help they need. Yeah. So, awesome. Okay. So you also talk about in your book, how um, in your private practice, you, you know, work, with children with apraxia of speech. And that's, is that all you work with in your practice? Is that your whole caseload? It's 90%. So okay. there are times that I, um, I'm a bleeding heart and I'll take on someone <laughs> because they just, I don't know, something strikes me as, you know, maybe it's a sibling or, you know, maybe sure. they're close and don't have transportation or sure. Uh, so then I will take on, you know, some other clients, but pretty much the criteria needs to be, you have to have some sort of motor speech along with whatever is going on. And I'm working on the verbal speech part of it. So I certainly have a lot of children who, um, you know, I, I have the best case scenario, honestly, because I have colleagues who specialize in AAC. And so we share many clients, their goals are specifically tailored for AAC and my goals are specifically tailored for verbal speech and we support each other, but it is nice to have that separation. Yeah. That's awesome. You guys are working in a team approach to support each yeah. other with SLPs. That's great. So you mentioned in your private practice, um, pretty much, I think you said every child that has a CAS diagnosis also has another diagnosis in addition to the apraxia of speech diagnosis. And you speak mm -hmm. how childhood apraxia of speech can occur in isolation, but more commonly you see it coexist mm -hmm. with other diagnoses. So what are some of those more common comorbidities that you see in children that are diagnosed with childhood apraxia of speech? Um, so actually there, even if, I mean, I could definitely talk about my private practice, but I do want to, um, like direct people to research from Dr. Yuzini Siegel, and she's really doing a lot of research with the whole child and CAS. And there's research that shows, you know, these children are, have a frequent, um, comorbidities with just your gross or, and, or fine motor skills. And what we're seeing now is that, there's this term that not a lot of us are familiar with, not even occupational therapists, um, to be frank, which is developmental coordination disorder. And it is an actual disorder for motor planning. I can't even tell you how many times I heard an OT in my course of career as a school SLP talk about how the child lacked motor planning or the child, you know, had a delay in motor planning. And that has a name. It's not just delay in motor planning, similar how we wouldn't say apraxia is delay in motor speech. Apra it's yes. apraxia. <laughs> right, right. Apraxia. And so when you see these motor planning issues in these children in, um, you know, it's called developmental coordination disorder and it, it goes largely undiagnosed and it's even more common than apraxia. I think I can't 
remember the exact statistic. If you follow me on Instagram, I do post about it every once in a while and give it, um, I want to say it's like 6%, which is pretty high uh-huh. or like one in 20 kids, you know, so apraxia is one in a thousand. Wow. <laughs> we have kids with, and, and these co-occur with autism. I mean, if you think about um, some of your babies and children with autism, having, you know, being clumsy, not being able to tie their shoes, like these are all symptoms of developmental coordination disorder. Okay. Um, so I would say that is a really frequent one that's getting overlooked. And um, yeah, I feel like SLPs, you know, a lot of times it's the speech that we're, you know, the child's referred because of a lack of speech. And that's kind of the first thing that um, is reported or that is seen. And SLPs can really play a critical role then in saying, you know what, I'm also seeing evidence of this. Maybe you want to get an OT about, or maybe we just want to get OT to come in here and look at this real quick, you know? Right. So, that is a very common one that I see. Um, another one is sensory processing disorder. It's kind of unfortunate it's not in the DSM-5. I mean, yes, it it's such a thing. Like, it's a legit thing. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> um, so I see that frequently reported, or I see that frequently. Um, and then, unfortunately, here's the thing. It's because CAS is a neurological disorder, and anything neurological is unlikely to be this nice, neat little package that only occurs by itself. That's not how the brain works at all <laughs> with anyone familiar with the brain. Yes. So, although it can, and those cases are so rare and I don't have any kids on my caseload that I've seen like that. I've seen one adult who reported that um, at an apraxia conference I went to, but everyone else has at least something else, maybe mild coordination um, issues, things like that. Right. And So you referred to developmental coordination disorder. Is that also sometimes called dyspraxia? Yes. So in the UK, and I tend to use dyspraxia more because it's easier. I mean, developmental coordination disorder, that is a really long. It is. I mean, but if if you say DC, it's the same with childhood apraxia speech. That's also long, but at least we can say CAS. Yes. um, And shorten it and SLPs know what I'm talking about. No one knows what I'm talking about if I say DCD. Yes. So I tend to, you either have to write it out, developmental coordination disorder, or I just choose to use dyspraxia. And the difference is dyspraxia is the term preferred and used in the UK and developmental coordination disorder is the term used and preferred, I think by the who I just did a, I did a podcast or a zoom with a, a researcher on developmental coordination disorder. And I believe she said the who has adopted um, developmental coordination disorder. And so is the U.S. But yes, it's all the same thing. Dyspraxia, developmental coordination disorder, those are the same. And when you say the who, you're talking about the World Health Organization? Okay, just want to clarify that. And then one more thing I'd like you to clarify for our audience. So apraxia of speech versus oral apraxia. Yes, people think I'm talking about the same thing and I'm not. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, so you can have... So there's verbal apraxia and oral apraxia. And so oral apraxia, my daughter also has, and this is not something I realized was a thing. Again, I didn't work birth to three, but still. Um, Oral apraxia is any difficulties with motor planning of non-speech oral movements. So, you know, I just remember her pucker was so weird. Like she couldn't pucker. She couldn't round her lips to say a W. Like lip retraction was hard. Like anything moving the articulators that didn't involve speech was hard. Sucking out of a straw was hard. Um, Blowing a candle, blowing bubbles. Like she couldn't do this stuff. Um, And so that is what we would consider a problem with oral apraxia. So difficulty planning and programming the movements of non-speech, like essentially the non-speech planning and programming the non-speech movements, right? So if you see a child who is demonstrating difficulty with that, um, if you go to add verbal, you know, the verbal processes to it, including, you know, we have respiration and phonation and all those other things on top of it, and the child is struggling, you are more likely to suspect that the cause of the struggle with the speech is verbal apraxia as well. Gotcha. Okay, good. Yeah, I think it's good. Those get confused a lot um, by families and some therapists alike. So thank you for kind of clearing that up and helping us to differentiate between the two because they are two separate diagnoses that involve separate challenges, different challenges for each of them. If I may, I want to add one more thing to that. I think that a lot of times there's this big push right now that I see and that's a posterior tongue tie. 
And so children who are having difficulty with, you know, some some movements of non-speech that are non-speech in nature um, are being attributed to posterior tongue tie. And I get really nervous because, I mean, we're, for one, setting up a child for surgery that might be unneeded. And yeah. with posterior, with the tongue tie surgery, it, there's a high likelihood that it grows back, you know, yeah. and then there's scar tissue with it. And, you know, it could just very well be it's oral apraxia, but because we don't know about oral apraxia, we see that the child has difficulty lateralizing their tongue or moving their tongue up, up and down. And then we're like, oh gosh, we need to get them a referral to um, get their, uh, get it clipped when it really could actually be oral apraxia. And I know this because this has happened to myself and my daughter. So, you know, really then it becomes, well, how do you tease out the difference? Well, look at the other movements that are non-speech in nature that don't involve the tongue. So I talked about puckering, blowing, lip rounding, lip retraction, uh, things like that. And if the child's struggling with those things as well, you're probably looking at oral apraxia and that we don't have to jump to a tongue tie necessarily. Thank you for sharing that because that is important. And yes, we are hearing so much in our field about TOTS, tethered oral tissues. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's a fun little acronym. But yeah, <laughs> so thank you for just reminding us of that to not jump to a conclusion and possibly send a child to get you know, their tongue clipped and undergo that surgery and, um, and possibly just be right back where they are. It's important that we really identify the root of the problem and treat it, you know, appropriately versus again, jumping to a conclusion. So thank you for sharing that. Um, okay. So kind of last thing I want to chat with you about, you mentioned earlier that you and Carrie Ebert have been doing some Facebook lives together, which have been awesome. Um, uh, it's really wonderful to get to hear you guys kind of talk to each other and discuss topics about childhood apraxia of speech. Cause again, you both are specialized in that area. So as a community, I know there's lots of SLPs, including myself that appreciate those conversations that you guys kind of let us in on and allow us to listen to and learn from. But um, recently when you guys, when you and Carrie were chatting, you discussed strategies for parents to help their child at home should their child have childhood apraxia of speech. Could you share some of those strategies with our audience today? Yeah, and I want to mention too, all of these strategies and the signs and symptoms that I'm talking about are available on Carrie's website, carrieebertseminars.com. And uh, you just go to downloads and you can find these here. And she has cute little infographics that she's made based on the talks that we've had. Um, but yeah, so I think that, you know, early intervention SLPs um, know a lot of these. And these are what you guys are really recommending that families do. Um, but when we think about apraxia, you know, it is more than language stimulation. So it is more of like a direct form, but we have to be indirect and sneaky because they're birthed in the <laughs> Yes. And so uh, one thing that I really learned from an early intervention SLP that's been gold for me that I was telling Carrie was offering verbal choices. So where I was trying to get, let's say a child to say purple, you know, and what do we do? We pepper the child with questions, which is not what you want to do um, right. to these children who are struggling to speak. But if we were sneaky and we offered choices, you know, do you want purple or blue? They're more likely to initiate some sort of verbal response. You know, of course they might lunge at it and grab at it too, and that's okay. But, um, for parents to do that too, just reminding them like it, it's still when we're offering verbal choices, we're still getting into motor initiation. So even if they are grabbing with their hand, uh, apraxia can co-occur as we talked about with dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder. And a hallmark of any sort of motor planning is difficulty with motor initiation. So you really are doing a lot working on verbal choices with just making sure that the child understands that they're going to initiate, you know, um, a choice. So I love that. Power words, core words, functional words, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, these are words that, you know, are really powerful for the kid and motivating. So obviously favorite people names, pets, favorite toys, places, um, and then functional words, you know, possibly like all done. No, you know, that's powerful to be able to protest. Um, those are all words that we kind of want to hone in on. And it's child dependent too. Like I have a child right now who has apraxia with a limited consonant repertoire. He's three, but he loves ice cream and he can say an S and he can say I, 
And so ice went in there because it's very motivating for him. So that would know, be one of not... my power words too. Right? <laughs> no, exactly. So, I mean, and so we, we really tailor it to the child. And um, in a way, when we, when we give a parent a set of a word list to work on, um, parents feel more focused, you know, and, and having these functional, powerful words where they don't have to sit down and drill, which is awful, or try and do therapy. And, you know, they really can just incorporate them throughout the day. So that's really great for them to um, work with the SLP and develop those power words. Um, another thing would be, as I just mentioned, replaced replace test-like questions with the comments. So we don't want to be peppering a child with questions. Um, that's a very fast way to shut a person, even if they're a baby or not, with apraxia down. Like if you do that to Ashlyn right now, you are going to shut her down and she's 11 and can speak pretty well and conversationally. Yeah. Um, but the minute you start peppering her with questions, it's over. Like it's not going to happen. Yeah. I heard one, um, I don't know, in a CEU course I've taken at some point, the presenter said, was talking about this very thing and said, you know, think about it. Why would you ever want to have a conversation with anyone if, if you just felt like you were being quizzed the whole time? Yes, you know, yes. I mean, the pressure is just too much. And then when you have a child that has difficulty getting their words out or planning the movement needed to say those words, how overwhelming for them, that pressure, that, you know, that timing that's required to respond so quickly. So, and I reckon, you know, the, these strategies are very familiar to me as an EISLP, but when yeah. I have families that are questioning a little bit too much, I try to remind them to use a three to one ratio. I'll say for every three comments you make, then ask one question just to kind of get them. Yeah, I like more- that focused on the commenting or narrating what's happening versus the constant questioning. So um, that helps too. I love that idea. That's fantastic. Um, Other things to do would be talk and read books face to face. So definitely as SLPs, I'm sure we all are doing that, but um, you know, I don't think, you know, parents, you're not really thinking in terms of that when you're a parent, when you're a parent, you want them on your lap and you're snuggling them and it's nighttime and, you know, it's more like a bonding activity. Um, But certainly, and certainly keep that. You don't want to discourage that either. Um, But you can encourage your parents like throughout the day when a child just brings you a book to you, for example, um, that you're going to, you know, you're going to read it in a way where they can see your face. And um, in this way, I mean, people, babies learn to talk by seeing a person's face, (laughs) you know, and mothers get their baby right up to their face. And um, the same is true with toddlers who can't speak. It is so helpful with those mirror neurons to look at someone's face um, while they're speaking. So, uh, and and book reading is just a great way to do that. Um, Here's another thing, using less language when trying to elicit speech. So, man, like we can speak in so such long conversational sentences that, you know, that <laughs> it, it, it might be easier instead of, you know, speaking in these long sentences to just narrow the focus. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah. It always depends on your goal, right? If your goal is, you know, um, you know, language modeling or, you know, then of course, you know, speak in long sentences. But if your goal is to try and elicit an easier response from a child, we might want to think about instead of saying like, oh, let's tell the puppy bye-bye. Let's tell the puppy bye-bye. We might just back it up a little bit and let's try bye-bye, bye-bye puppy, you know, simplifying it a little bit if we want them to be able to imitate us. Yes. It's too overwhelming. Those long sentences for kiddos that are having difficulty getting those words out. So you can the same, you're conveying the same message with just saying bye-bye puppy versus, okay, let's say say goodbye to the puppy now. (laughs) Fewer sounds and words to imitate, but more achievable for the child. So that's, I think that's, yeah, very important to remember. Well, I I like to point out that it's interesting. You know, one thing I really noticed about Ashlyn was if I would ask her, um, you know, let's just say her name. Let's say I said, you know, I want say, what's your name? Say Ashlyn. Um, she would not even attempt it. But once we got her in therapy where the therapist was like, how about this? How about, because we knew she had an SH because of shoe. Mm-hmm. So how about Ash? She was willing to attempt that. How about in? She was willing to attempt that. So even thinking in terms of a word, you know, like if a child is really struggling and not at that even two word or two syllable level yet, breaking it down and just modeling a syllable can be really helpful in eliciting a response. So Right, right. 
Yeah. And then um, I think all EI people do this pretty well and teach our parents to do it, but definitely focusing on um, uh, sound effects, right? Like I think we're masters at this if you're an early intervention because children love it. They do. They love the silly. They love the crazy, the unexpected, the wow, we, whoa, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those sounds are easier to imitate, right? Exactly. They're fun and they're easier to imitate. So, you know, nay, nay, moo, moo, ba, ba, you know, things like that. They're all easier to imitate and are fun for them. Yes. And I tell families too, like when we say wow or ooh or, or even uh oh, to Typically, we vary vary our intonation and we might say it a little bit louder and pair it with a gesture. When we say, "Uh uh-oh, we often lift our arms and drop them to our side. (laughs) Wow. Our eyes get big and our mouth opens. So that also entices the the child to want to imitate what we're saying because we got their attention. And man, that looks like fun to say. (laughs) Exactly. Totally. Yes. Instead of, you know, we're telling them like, do you want your applesauce? Say applesauce, applesauce, applesauce. Like that's not as fun. That's not as fun as wow. uh Exactly. We have more fun as adults too. So yeah, totally. (laughs) Everyone. This is a big Carrie Ebert one. This is on her list. Um, Avoid telling the child to say words because it it can't get overwhelming for a kid. And parents do all this to say this, say that, say mama, say mama, say dada, say. And again, we're just like we're 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 that's a very on demand task for a child. And again, remembering that that on demand speech is much harder for a kid with motor planning. And also it is a way to shut these kids down in general, if we're just telling them to say this, say this, say this. So <laughs> too much pressure. Yeah. Too much pressure. So, um, you know, yeah. So we would avoid saying that in early intervention, obviously when they get older, it's a different scenario, but um, yes. for, birthday, for sure. And this is my favorite. This is one of my favorite things to do because I found it easy as a parent. And I also love using it in therapy, but choosing books and songs with repetitive words. So Brown Bear, Pete the Cat, Good Night Moon, you know, all of these uh, great books and then nursery rhymes like, you know, Itsy Bitsy or Baby Bumblebee. And, you know, what they allow you to do is Once the child learns those books because they're so repetitive, it decreases the cognitive load of them understanding what's being read to them because they already know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So when these have been read to them over and over or sang to them over and over, they know what's coming. And then you can use, and this is actually a research-based strategy as well called the pause technique. And you can pause and um, as an expectation for them to fill in the blank. So for example, with brown bear, we might say, you know, I see a red bird looking at, and the child knows what's coming because they've been exposed to it very, very often. I call it like a magic technique because they will try and come out with something. And a lot of times that's our problem with these, with these kids is that we don't have anything to work with. So it's one thing if they're speaking and then you can try and shape it. It's another thing when they're not. (laughs) So then this can be an effective way if they come out with E, like, yeah, E, now let's try it with your humming sound, me, and you have something to shape there. So I love this technique. I use it all the time. Um, yes. Yeah. So those are great. And then, you know, we are kind of already talked about this with the power words, but um, maybe focusing on five target words um, and make those power words that the parents can incorporate throughout the day kind of is achievable for a parent. Um <laughs> you know, going about their busy life, if they know, okay, I'm going to work on mama, dada, out, because out is so common. And, you know, another word, I can do that. So, um, and sometimes I reduce it. Some families, they want to just work on one or two, and that's fine. You know, repetition is great with apraxia. Right. And just identifying those power words and then narrowing your targets to five or even less, like you said, it just, I'm sure it helps the families feel less overwhelmed because when you have it a kid isn't saying much at all, you want them to just say anything. So you're working all day trying to get some, you know, trying to elicit some type of imitation of a sound or a word. Golly, that, that must be so hard, you know, just overwhelming and just anxiety inducing. So that strategy, reducing the targets down for them must really be helpful and just kind of take some pressure off of them to be on all day long with their child. So absolutely. Exactly that. 
Good. Um, and the last strategy we kind of had on here was say target words together in unison. So let's say it, say it together. And this is actually a strategy based in research as well, based on DTTC, which is an approach based in principles of motor learning for apraxia. And saying it together really does so much. They're looking at your mouth, um, you're slowing down, you're focusing on the movements, and uh, it is an effective strategy for early intervention and beyond. Awesome. Good. So just to, to remind the audience again, so um, there's a free download on CarrieEbertSeminars.com on her website, and you can download this infographic on these strategies that Laura just reviewed with us, Apraxia Strategies Parents Can Use at Home. And then also on Carrie Ebert's website is those early signs of apraxia of speech that we talked about earlier in the podcast. You can also download that for free from her website. So thank you again, Laura, to you and Carrie for creating those handouts, because those are definitely something that a lot of us EISLPs can, you know, use in our practice and share with families virtually, but hopefully again, in person safely someday soon. I know. Yes. So, but thank you. Those kind of resources are wonderful to have on hand because it's one thing to tell and share information with our families verbally, but, you know, sometimes we have people who are learners that need to see things written down too and just have things as a reference to hang on the fridge and be reminded of. So those handouts always come in handy again and are appreciated by our field. So thank you for that. All right. So um, lastly, I just wanted to kind of wrap things up and mention again to our listeners to check out your book, Overcoming Apraxia by Laura Smith. And I purchased it off of Amazon. Is that the best place for our audience to go to, to purchase it, Laura? Yeah. I mean, it's on like barnesandnoble.com too, but I feel like it's probably more expensive there. Probably the cheapest route would be Amazon. <laughs> Maybe Amazon. Okay. So one or the other Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Yes. It, you know, Amazon's always so nice because you get things so quickly. So yes, <laughs> I like I that. Know. I got it in two days. Yeah. Yay. And started reading it. Yes. And I really enjoyed it again. I, I thank you for writing that, for sharing your journey um, and, and your story about your daughter. It, again, is beneficial to me as a professional and a parent. And I know that there are many people out there that also will benefit from it after they read it and would also appreciate you sharing your experience. Um, your, your story, uh, Laura, is inspiring and uplifting, but I also found it to be informative and empowering as a professional. Yay. So, well, that's what I wanted. It is a memoir type style of my daughter's journey overcoming apraxia and various comorbidities, but I did pack in like a lot of definitions, a lot of specialists. You might see resources that are credible um, to go to and um, treatment approaches and strategies that are research-based. So I did want to make it, um, I wanted to make it, you know, a narrative, but I also wanted to make it informative. So I'm glad that you yes. say it served that purpose. That's good it to hear. It did. And, and you pulled it off in a way, your writing pulled it off in a way that I, I didn't even re realize that it was a personal narrative kind of meshed with the informative part. It was, it just all <laughs> flowed so well, but it definitely oh, left me appreciating both of those perspectives. So thank you again. Uh, my hope is that this podcast, uh, our conversation today will reach parents and therapists alike and, and provide them with um, the same inspiration that I've received from engaging in this conversation with you and from reading your book and from following you on social media. Uh, Laura, again, I just thank you for your time today. And if anyone out in the audience would like to reach out to you with maybe any questions or comments? What's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly readily available on any of the social media forums. A lot of people do tend to reach out to me through private messages on um, Facebook at SLP Mommy of Apraxia or Instagram SLP Mommy of Apraxia. Uh, but my email is also available on my website, um, SLPMommyofApraxia.com. So I feel like uh, if you want to get a hold of me, it shouldn't be uh, difficult to just go to one of those places and find me. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you everyone for listening in today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I enjoyed um, recording it with Laura. And just a reminder, make sure that you are following Milestones and Miracles on Instagram at Milestones Miracles. You like us on Facebook so that you can see all the information we share there. And we're also on Twitter at Milestones M. Thank you, Laura, again, for your thank time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.